you know, listening to the announcement schedule at a church on, on Christmas or throughout the month of December is always uh, pretty entertaining because there's just so many different things that churches do. It tends to be a pretty busy time of the year. And I know it's not limited to churches, it's, it's schools, it's neighborhoods, it's families. And I'm sure that your schedule is packed and it's busy. And, and I think it's a lot of fun. It's always got some great things that you're able to do together with friends, with loved ones to celebrate the Christmas season. But I, I was thinking about it this week. I think it's part of the reason why I love Christmas, right? Because what it feels like, if, if your world is like ours, is that you have all this stuff that you're doing up until the 25th, you know? And then finally Christmas morning arrives, and, and it's like it's here. And you can finally just breathe a sigh of relief. And, and it's almost as if the whole uh, time leading up to Christmas morning has been a race, and you just hear the run, run, Rudolph as the background music through your life, it feels like. And then you finally cross that finish line on Christmas morning. And, and just like every runner, when they finish running a race, they just breathe a sigh of relief, right? And they finally begin to rest. And, and so I think one of the reasons why I love the Christmas season is because it really is, once you get to Christmas morning, it's filled with this opportunity to just rest. And, and a lot of times that rest takes place at home. I know for our family, uh, our, our kind of rhythm at this point in our lives is we'll, we'll wake up Christmas morning here in Arlington, Fort Worth area, and just have our immediate family. We'll celebrate Christmas morning, and then by mid-morning, uh, because my kids wake up at about 4 a.m., we're headed out to visit grandparents, and, and then we get a chance to see grandparents. And we alternate uh, each year which home we're going to go to or which grand, set of grandparents we're going to go see. And this year, we get a chance to go see my family in Abilene, so I get to go back to my hometown, and, and we'll be in my home where I have all my childhood memories from Christmas. And that just seems to be such an easy place for me to be at rest. And, and I think one of the reasons it is uh, that way is because that's often what we do at home. Home is a place of rest. It's part of the reason why I love being at home, and I don't think I'm alone, right? Uh, let me just do a quick poll. How many of you out there today would say, you are a homebody, right? You just love, you know, look at y'all, right? Can I get an amen? Like there's just something about being at home that is great. You know, whether it's the Christmas season or it's just the end of a day and you're finished off with work or whatever the responsibilities were and you get to walk through those doors and you just, you feel that sense of relief, hopefully. And, and you get a chance just to finally let loose, let your guard down because there's nothing like being able to be in a place like home that allows you that opportunity to respond that way and, and rest that way. And so I've been wrestling with or thinking about why is that? Like, what is it about home that creates that kind of space and that opportunity to rest? And, and, and what are we really experiencing when we enter into those types of moments? And, and here's what I would really offer is that I think the reason that we're able to rest so easily and so meaningfully at a place like home is because it's safe, right? Like, it's safe in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different capacities. Like, in one way, it's, it's a physical safety that it provides. Um, it, it's an actual shelter for your life. You are not having to sleep out in the elements and worry about enemies and bears and animals and storms and all these other things. It provides an actual physical protection. It creates a safe place for you that allows you to rest. But we know it's not just physical safety either, right? It, there's an emotional safety that comes with being at home, right? Home is supposed to be the place where you get to go and, and you get to truly let out these emotions that you experience throughout your day, 
throughout your week. And, and it's the place where you get to be sad and joyful. It's the place where you get to be afraid and be optimistic and, and everything in between. And hopefully, it's the place where you are going to find other people that are going to hold you accountable for those emotions, that are going to empathize with those emotions, that are going to encourage you to, to navigate them well and to see them through. And so it creates an emotional safety, hopefully. Right? But it's not just emotional. It's, it's mental as well. Right? Your, your mind is racing throughout the day oftentimes with work responsibilities, parenting responsibilities, or whatever it may be that's on your list and whatever it is that you have to sort through. But home is a place where hopefully you can disconnect, you can unplug, you can decompress, you can let your mind rest and be at ease. It's not just mental, it's spiritual. Right? I would imagine, I would hope, right, that home is a place where some of your most earnest prayers are offered. Right, some of your most intimate moments with the Lord. Right? There's a safety there. There's, there's this opportunity to commune with God and to be in his presence at home unlike any other. Home is a place where we can ultimately rest, where we can ultimately find refuge, where we can ultimately find that ability to let our guards down because it is truly a place where we feel safe. That's why we love it. And, and I think Christmas has the opportunity to accentuate what a gift it is. And so the question that I want you to consider this morning is, what would it be like if you didn't have it? Right? In, in whatever capacity. Maybe it's literally. Maybe it is just the fact that maybe you have a place to go, but it isn't really safe for whatever reason. Be it because of broken relationships, fractured, fractured relationships. Um, it's a place of stress. Whatever it is that, that you've lost that sense of safety. You've lost that place that is supposed to be the one spot that you can go, the one arena, the one atmosphere that you can go to truly finally rest and be safe. Imagine what that would do to your heart. Imagine what that would do to your soul and how much you would long for it, how desperately you would crave it. How do you navigate those moments in life where it feels as though you're doing anything you can to find that safety that your soul longs for, to find that rest and that peace that you were created for? How do you navigate such roads? Well, that's the question that we're going to seek to answer today uh, by continuing this series. It's a series that we started last week that we've titled The Road to Bethlehem. And we explained last week that this is a title that is intended to be metaphorical, right? That the idea is that Bethlehem is the place where heaven meets earth. Right? It's, it's, it's where uh, God introduces us to Jesus. God takes on flesh and dwells among us. It's this place of this divine encounter. And so we all have our own journeys to introduce ourselves to Jesus. We all have our own roads that we travel down where we have this divine encounter. And those roads often look different, though they may have often the same destination. And so what kind of road are you on in this Christmas season? And how are you handling it? How are you navigating it? Well, the idea for this series was, well, let's take a look at these key pillars of the Christmas story and, and evaluate their road to Bethlehem, uh, be it literal or metaphorical, and how were they able to navigate certain circumstances. And last week we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and saw that the road that they were traveling down was a road of, of wounds, a road of pain, right? That they had gone through certain difficulties and this desire to have a child that had created a certain sense of shame and disgrace that ultimately led Zechariah to a place where he had a hard time even recognizing the hand of God, right? And, and so how did he respond? Well, what we saw by looking through their story was that they continued to press into God, to trust God, and, and we saw ultimately a response of praise 
and declaration, especially as it's articulated from Elizabeth, when she says, I can see the Lord has done this. His favor is upon me. He's noticed me, and he's taken away my disgrace. And that that's what we want to do whenever we travel down these roads of hardship or difficulty or pain, to press into God, to trust his plan, so that we can see his hand at work, know that he has noticed us, he cares for us, and that the whole essence of the gospel is to take away our disgrace. And so that was the first lesson that we looked at last week. Today, we're going to shift our focus onto Mary and Joseph. And in the story of Mary and Joseph and their road to Bethlehem is obviously a familiar one, or is likely a familiar one, uh, familiar one to many of us, but we're going to get a chance to discover what it was that they had to face, what were the unique circumstances in their journey, and as we get a chance to look at their, their journey, we hopefully will walk away with certain lessons that we can apply to our own. And, and, and one of the themes that we're going to see as we work through these passages today is, is there are several dominant themes that you can find in looking at these uh, narratives, these birth narratives that have revealed themselves in Luke and in Matthew's gospel. Themes like God's sovereign protection over Jesus, especially at his birth. Themes like God's plan on display. And I want you to have those in the background of your mind as we read these passages today. But the one point of emphasis that we're going to look at uh, and the one theme that we're really going to camp out with today is how they were on a road searching for safety. They were searching for rest. They were searching for refuge. They were searching for home. And so let's take a look at it. We're going to start in Luke's gospel. Uh, We're not going to just stay in Luke's gospel. (coughs) We're going to also take a look at Matthew's gospel. So we'll go beyond Bethlehem and see even kind of how their story unfolds after Jesus' birth. And so I'm going to read Luke's first, offer a few comments about it, then we'll flip to Matthew and we'll break that one down, and then we'll kind of zoom out and look at all of it collectively, okay? That's the plan for us this morning. So starting in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Okay, a couple of things about Luke's gospel first before we get to Matthew's gospel. The, the catalyst for this journey, right, the, the thing that initiates their journey to Bethlehem is the census, right? It was the time of Caesar Augustus, and he decreed that a census should be taken throughout the entire Roman world, and people had to go back to their own towns to register. And so that's what prompts uh, Joseph to move and take Mary to Bethlehem, okay? And so it's the census that kind of is the catalyst for their journey. And in verse 4, what we notice is that it says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. So we know that, that Joseph is, is of the line of David, but he's not actually from Bethlehem. So what I want to point out to you is that he's from Nazareth, okay? And so this journey begins with him leaving home, right? So He's leaving that place of familiarity. He's leaving that place of comfort. He's leaving that place of safety. He's leaving home, and he's on a journey. 
right? And so he, he leaves Nazareth. He takes Mary with him. Uh, he's got her because they have to go and, and register. She was pledged to be married to him, as it says in verse 5. She's expecting a child. So we see that things have progressed from chapter 1 where the angel came and made this announcement to Mary. She is now expecting child. And then in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Everything that unfolds in, in verse 6 and 7 kind of just seems to fall normally, right? She was expecting a child. The time came for the child to be born. Uh, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths. And all of this seems to be very, very normal until you get one word that should leap off the page. She takes this child and she lays him in a manger. Now, we have taken that word and so infused it with our Christmas traditions and, and everything that is Christmas. That's how we associate it, right? The manger is the place of Jesus' birth. It's sweet. It's cute. It's innocent. It's sacred. All these different things. But if you were reading this, at the time in which it was written, and if we were hearing it for the first time, she took her child and she laid him in a feed box, a trough. Now listen, when, when like new parents have babies, think about the effort that goes into the nursery, right? Like we're picking out colors and schemes and themes and new cribs and baby bumpers and crib sheets and monitors that like surround the child and do like thermal readings and do like blood white cell counts and all these different things and rock their children to sleep. That's what we bring our children home to now. She lays her child in a trough. Why? Such an unusual decision for a mother to make. Man, we, we have a baby. Everything's got to be sanitized. Everything's got to be clean. Everything's got to be, you know, uh, purified and make sure that everything is going to protect this. She lays her child in a trough. And that last part of verse 7 explains to us why there was no room. No room. And so I want you to think about that for a moment, okay? Because when, when it's time to have a baby, right, it's, it's rarely met with a response of calm and casual, Right? It's typically pressing and urging. And if you've walked through that moment, you know that it can be intense, it can be stressful, it can be concerning, and all those different things. This is not just a casual moment. And so here are Mary and Joseph in that moment, that climactic time where the baby is ready to arrive and they've got nowhere to go. Don't you know they are desperately searching for some place that they would consider to be safe? Like, don't you think they're looking for a home, somewhere to go, and none is found. Their only option is some form of a cave or a barn or a stall or whatever it was. The only option for their child is a manger. It's incredibly remarkable. And, and the main takeaway I want us to kind of file in our brains here for the first part of this discussion is that what Luke's gospel tells us is that the road for Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem was one of homelessness. They had no home, no place that they saw as safe. Now this theme, I would say, somewhat continues and develops even further. Flip over to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at how this account only continues beyond Bethlehem. 
right? Uh, this is the one couple that we'll look at uh, that takes us beyond the town of Bethlehem and into other parts of their road and their journey in the early parts of Jesus' life. And so here in Matthew chapter 2, in a couple of weeks, we're going to actually focus in on the wise men. That will be our focus for Christmas Eve morning. And so I'm not going to read that in detail, but the first part of chapter 2 talks about the visit of the Magi. They go to Herod. They say, hey, we hear there's a new king of the Jews, which Herod was really excited to hear about that, right? He sees that as a threat, and he's like, really? Tell me, where is this going to be? Oh, Bethlehem. Well, y'all let me know when you find him. I'd love to go pay him a visit. And so the Magi figure out, well, we're not going to do that. This guy seems shady. And so they go and visit Jesus, drop off all the gifts, all those different things, and then they go back a different way. And, And so this is what happens after that. Okay, we're going to be in verses 13 through the end of chapter 2. When they had gone, they being the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and asked, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, uh, I want to break this part up into two different sections, okay? The first section, verses 13 uh, through 18, (coughs) show us that Herod uh, is obviously really upset about the situation. And so as the Magi have outwitted uh, King Herod, and, and we know that he is about to respond with a certain level of fury, an angel appears to Joseph in the middle of the night and says, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to Egypt and flee. And, and the reason that they need to flee, and what you, you see revealed a little bit later in verse, I believe it's 16, is that when Herod f- figures out that he's been outwitted, that he's been tricked, he is so enraged that he offers an edict to kill every child under the age of two in Bethlehem and in its vicinity. Let that sink in. Every child under the age of two that's, that's, a, that's a boy. And, and so now there are some questions about this and the validity of this, this part of the story because this uh, edict that Herod offers isn't really documented in any external biblical uh, historical records. And a lot of folks would say, well, now listen, if somebody did that, if a king did that, surely that would be captured in a lot of these historical records. So can we really believe that this is actually how it went down? And, and here's why it's not really uh, that concerning that you don't find it in uh, other historical records. Uh, a cu- for a couple of reasons. One would be that Bethlehem was a very, very small population. Uh, it was a very small town. And so what we're talking about here is not likely to be a significant number of children. Okay, uh, some of the studies that I read, we're, we're talking like maybe a handful, maybe a dozen, 
okay? And so it, we're not talking hundreds and thousands. And it wasn't an ongoing edict, right? It wasn't from now on every firstborn child or every firstborn male. It was a very specific moment. And because Jerusalem was only five miles outside of Bethlehem, there's a good chance that this thing uh, happened very quickly. There, there's a chance he offers the edict and it's carried out that same night. So we're talking like a, a small concentrated effort that is gruesome and horrific, uh, but a very small number and potentially happening very quick. And this all happening at a time period where it was filled with a lot of violence and revolts. It, it's not unreasonable to think that this kind of escaped the notice of some historians or that it didn't elevate itself to the certain surface. Okay, so that's part of the explanation that helps you understand kind of the context of what took place. But similarly, uh, we can still consider the Bible to be a historical source uh, and a reliable historical source for this time period. And, and when we look at it, we see that this actually fits with Herod's character, as he's described in other places, that this is the sort of king that he was. This is how he ruled. And, and so you have this incredibly gruesome edict and decision to go out and kill these, these children that were under the age of two in this concentrated Bethlehem in its vicinity. And so with that edict being offered, the angel visits Joseph in the middle of the night and says, get up, go. And, and what we can estimate based on how these things progress, okay, because this is not um, Jesus in the manger. This is not the birth night or birth day of Jesus this, in which this is taking place. Um, the, the Magi visit Jesus later. I hate to break that to you, okay? But you go home, fix your nativity sets, okay? Take the wise men, move them further off the shelf, okay? Because they're on their way the night that Jesus is laid in the manger. But either way, when they arrive, we know that Jesus was probably somewhere between the ages of six months and 20 months old, okay? So he's, he's in his infancy, He's a newborn, um, and now Joseph gets this dream in the middle of the night, hey, wake up your wife, get your newborn, and take the 75-mile hike to Egypt. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever done a road trip with a six-month-old. It's awesome. Uh, it's such a delight, y'all. Like, they're so compliant, and they never fuss. They love car seats. I mean, it's, it's just the best experience in the world. Um, but in all honesty, imagine taking your newborn— taking this child, six months, 20 months old, or somewhere in between, in the middle of the night, and beginning that trek of 75 miles. Why? Because you're not safe. This isn't a safe place for you. You can't rest here. You can't be protected here. You have no opportunities to survive this environment. You have to flee. Now, there's a part of this that fulfills the Old Testament, right, out of Egypt. And then you see the reference to Jeremiah. So you see that this was in the works. This was part of God's plan. But again, imagine Mary and Joseph. Imagine their feelings. Listen, I know that they probably trusted him and they believed in, in the angel and all these different things that happened. But, but now they're having to flee again. And they're desperately longing for anything, any place that can keep them safe. Here's the second point from this story. They didn't just have a road that was one of homelessness. Their road was a road of refugees. That's who they were. They were seeking refuge anywhere that they could find it. And so they ultimately find it in Egypt, and they're told to wait there until Herod dies. Right? And, and so finally Herod dies. We don't know exactly how long that was, but an angel comes and tells Joseph, okay, he's, he's no longer alive. Those who were trying to kill the child are not there. You can go back to the land of Israel. 
So he gets up and he starts going back to the land of Israel. And then he, he has his eyes initially set, it would seem, on Judea, kind of thinking again about going back to Bethlehem. But then he hears that the one that's replaced Herod, Archelaus, I believe is his name, <coughs> is in charge. And that concerns Joseph, right? He's afraid of going back to a place where this guy is in rule. And he gets another warning and another uh, kind of word of caution from another dream. Joseph is continually having dreams in this to say, don't go back there. Uh, go back to the region of Galilee and go back to Nazareth, okay? And, and so this is really interesting because essentially, once again, he looks at a different place, a different destination, says, I don't think we'll be safe there. And so what does he do? He returns home. Nazareth was his home. It's where his journey began. Uh, and so he's constantly been looking for a place that could be safe. He finally returns home. But there's the reason this is a point of emphasis in Jesus' birth narrative. Because of that decision, because he didn't feel like Bethlehem was a safe place, because he had to return to Nazareth, now we see Jesus, not the Bethlehemite, right, but Jesus the Nazarene. And that's a very different moniker that would be attached to Jesus, and one that I want to make sure that we understand this morning, because Bethlehem was sacred. It was the, the town of David, the line of David. To, to be J Jesus the Bethlehemite would make sense for the Messiah. Nazarene? That was different. Right? Again, it's, it's referenced here as being a part of the prophecy, but that prophecy was really actually arguing for something a little bit uh, different. Uh, it wasn't just trying to argue for a specific geographical location. Uh, Nazareth had a negative reputation. In Acts 24, uh, there is a reference to them referring to the first Christian movement as a Nazarene sect, and that was considered to be a slight, an insult. And, and to ha help you kind of see and accentuate that insult in John 1, I think it's verse 46, maybe where Philip says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's how people viewed Nazareth. So their journey, let's summarize, their road, Mary and Joseph, is a road of homelessness, of refugee, and then ultimately setting in a place in a town that is despised. <laughs> this is their road. This is their journey. There's a great quote uh, that I think accentuates uh, what is being said here. It says, David's son uh, would emerge from, being, meaning the Messiah, would emerge from humble obscurity and low state. Jesus is King Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, but he was a branch from a royal line, hacked down to a stump, and reared in surroundings guaranteed to win him scorn. Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with the pomp of an earthly monarch, but in accord with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of the Lord. I want us to try to connect to and relate to um, this, this journey that Mary and Joseph have been on, this journey of homelessness, refuge, and a town that is despised. And I want us to try to, to, to learn from it, right? And, and I think one of the ways that we can do that is to recognize that these roads that uh, Mary and Joseph had to travel are not ancient situations or ancient problems. They're roads that many people have to travel even today. Uh, maybe some of you have had to go down similar journeys for whatever reason, but whether you have or haven't, we all know that we've been surrounded and are surrounded by people that have. Uh, let's first consider the plight of homelessness to better understand what Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to go through. Um, from a modern perspective, 
At any given night in Tarrant County, there are around 2,500 people who are looking for a home and a place to stay. Any night, 2,500 people in Tarrant County. Of those 2,500 people, around 1,500 of them are going to find refuge in some sort of an emergency shelter in this area. Right? And, and let me emphasize the word emergency shelter. Those places are not long-term solutions. They're not designed to be. They're not intended to be. They don't function that way. They're temporary. So about 1,500 get momentary and temporary relief. The other 1,000 have nowhere to go. They are unsheltered each night. And, and what we know uh, by having a chance to work with, minister to, um, affiliate with folks that are in such a plight and in such a circumstance is that not having a home has significant impact on you. Right? Like, it, it, is, it is one of the most innate needs that we have. The National Institute of Health talks about the impact that homelessness has on an individual and the way that it creates additional stress, depression, anxiety, and all these different things because the natural instinct is to have a home. And when it is denied of you, it creates feelings of insecurity and powerlessness. So when you think about the road for Mary and Joseph, understand that what they battled and what they had to navigate was these overwhelming feelings of insecurity and powerlessness. Recognize that even Jesus at his birth was denied the basic shelter that so many people enjoy and the trauma that that can create. Let's talk about um, the idea of being a refugee. Uh, according to the National uh, United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, uh, NHCR, uh, UNHCR, there are around 110 million refugees worldwide, or displaced people worldwide is the better way to say it. 110 million, because within that 110 million, you have different categories. Some would be considered refugees, some asylum seekers, some internally displaced. Now, 110 million people, here's the stat that I also wanted to share with you this morning. Of those 110 million, 40%, 43.3 million are children. Right? Like, that's their story. Being forced out of their home in the middle of the night for fear of death, for fear of threats, for fear of persecution, whatever it is, they are desperately seeking a place that feels safe, where they can rest. They want home. And I want us to, to recognize that journey a little bit. We, this summer, we took uh, our, our youth trips um, to New York and to Houston. The high schoolers went up to New York, the, the junior high and middle schoolers, we went to Houston. And both ministry efforts had the opportunity to work with refugees and displaced people. And so when we were preparing the middle school team in particular for what that ministry looks like and, and trying to help paint a picture for them to say, hey, here, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be connecting with other kids who have gone through quite a bit. And, and so when you're playing sports with them or you're doing crafts or you're, we're working in their home and bringing in furniture, whatever it is, we want you to have some understanding of what they've gone through and what it means to be a refugee. And so we showed them this video. And I decided to go ahead and show it to you this morning as well. It's a short um, clip, and it's, it's, it's a creative way. It just has little second clips to help tell a story through the eyes of a child um, who's gone through a similar journey of seeking refuge. So let's take a look at this video, and I'll, keep up, or I'll come back up and continue our conversation. Happy birthday to you. Hey, 
Hello. Have you done your homework? Adam! Ready or not? Here it comes! Violent clashes with British. So you can see um, in a very powerful way what that road looks like and the trauma that it can create, what, what it really looks like when you read, hey, get up in the middle of the night and go to Egypt. That, that's what you're reading. That's the sort of story. It's what it looks like for a family or for a child to look uh, desperately for a place that can be safe, a place where they can rest, a place where they can call home. This is the road that Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to travel down. And so when it finally subsides, okay, um, dealing with that trauma, dealing with displacement and homelessness, uh, they land in Nazareth, which while it probably provides a, a decent level of comfort because this is Joseph's hometown, this is where he grew up, all these different things, it still creates scorn and, and this idea of being despised because it's Nazareth, right? It's, it's the part of town nobody goes to. That's the part of town nobody really wants to be found in. Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is their road. This is their journey. And, and when we stop and we reflect upon it, I think there's, there's a lot that we can learn I think there's a lot that, that is worthy of reflection and evaluation for us this morning. And so I wanted to, to show a video like that and bring these statistics in here so that we could better connect to what they were doing. We, we kind of need to de-Christmasize the story because we, we wrap it up with such tenderness and innocence and sweetness, which is all good, but it was, it was a harrowing journey. It was a difficult journey. Don't you know they were crying out in desperate for safety, for refuge, for rest, for a home. Don't you know there were moments for Mary and or Joseph, though they had the visions, though they had the word of the Lord, they were sitting there going, God, what are you doing with this? Why are we having to run? Why are we having to flee? When do we finally get to rest? That's their road. And so there are a couple of things that I want us to reflect on. Uh, this morning when considering the road of Mary and Joseph that I hope will help us navigate this Christmas season. And the first is for us to really um, use this as an opportunity to evaluate our own hearts and how we tend to respond to those sorts of situations and those sorts of individuals that find themselves on similar roads. As I said earlier, um, maybe that's a road you've had to walk down yourself. Maybe it's in your future. 
maybe you're walking down it currently, right, where, where you are literally fighting for a safe place to stay and, and seeking that refuge. I think for many of us, we, we probably are afforded the opportunity and the blessing that, that that's not something we, we're currently facing. And, and so a lot of times, uh, our interaction with it is to rather uh, or really need to evaluate how we respond to those that are on that road. And, and I would ask you to think about this morning, um, how do you typically view those that are homeless? Like what, what goes through your heart and your mind when you see someone sleeping under a bridge or holding a sign at an intersection? What thoughts do you have? How do you respond? My hope, right, is that for most of us, it's out of compassion. It's a response of generosity, of empathy, understanding. But I think if we were all honest, we could confess that while we do try to respond that way, there are going to be just as many moments where maybe there's prejudices that work their way in. Certain assumptions that we make about that person, that individual, why they're in that situation, why we can and can't help. How do you respond to the refugee? How, how do you think about those that are fleeing a country of their own, doing everything they can to enter into another one? You see them as threats, you see it as concerns. You, do you see it as an opportunity to extend compassion? Like, how do you respond? And then internally, right? Just within our own neighborhoods, our own communities. What about those areas of town that you're unsure of? Places that you don't really want to drive through. Or all of a sudden you find yourself in those neighborhoods and you're uncomfortable. Have you ever asked yourself why you're uncomfortable? What's it like to not feel safe? those thoughts that you have. I think it's absolutely worth remembering during the Christmas season that when we evaluate what our heart's response is to those that are on the road of homelessness or refuge or a despised part of town is perhaps an insight and a glimpse to how we would respond to people like Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Which is why Jesus had some very powerful and appropriate words Right? When, when the people look at him and they say, but Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you in need of all these things? And he says, whenever you did something for one of these brothers and sisters of mine, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. <laughs> That's his road. Those are his origins. So I want to challenge us as a church that is committed to being a light in the darkness, to being those that can champion this gospel, to make sure that when we go through this Christmas season, we are mindful of the least of these. We see those who are on a road desperately searching for safety and refuge and rest, and we find some way, some measurable, tangible way that we can help provide it. Pray for those opportunities. Look for those opportunities. And be used by the Lord to minister to those who are on such a road. Now that being said, I don't think that's where the lesson stops. Right? I think there's, there's more to it. 
And, and the lesson for us is to recognize that, yes, some of us have, are, or will be on similar roads, even if we don't expect to be. There's no guarantee that we won't find ourselves in similar situations. But there's still a correlation that we can make with their journey that I think applies to us, right? Because all of us um, are going to have moments where we're longing for something that keeps us safe. We're longing for that rest. We're longing for that place of refuge. And, and we're going to have those moments where all those things are stripped from us, challenged. Um, they come up against some form of adversity. And we're going to wrestle with, how do I navigate such a road? Right? That this, this uh, lesson of Mary and Joseph is not just, how do I respond to others? But when I myself find myself desperate and longing and facing that sort of adversity and facing those sorts of trials, how do I make sense of it? And here's what I think we can learn um, from, from Mary and Joseph. The, the main thing that I think we see, if there was one major takeaway, it's that Joseph and Mary consistently demonstrate faithful and courageous obedience. <laughs> Every single time the Lord spoke and they obeyed. The Lord said, get up, and they went. The Lord said, settle here, and they did. And don't you know it was difficult? Don't you know it was not easy? Don't you know there were times where they questioned it, they were unsure, but they obeyed. And don't you know it took courage to leave the comforts of home, to, to, to embrace a road as being a refugee or one who doesn't have a place to stay to even give birth to their own child. Don't you know it took tremendous courage, and yet they had faith, they trusted, they believed. And while we don't have a specific testimony from them that, that fully articulates why, though we do see uh, some beautiful demonstrations of it with Mary's song and other moments along the journey, here's what I would argue would be some of the reasons that allowed them to be faithfully, courageously obedient. I think first and foremost, and this is the lesson for us in our own life, what we can learn from a story like Mary and Joseph is that God's plan is more important than our comfort. Always. God's plan is more important than our comfort. So ask yourself this Christmas season, which one are you following? Which one are you pursuing? His plan or your comfort? Right? He, he's going to put us down roads that create this discomfort, that displace us, that, that make us rely upon him, that are going to sharpen our faith. And so never lose sight of the fact that God's plan is more important than our comfort. Right? And that, that a lot of times that comfort's going to be disrupted because of the acts of others, people like Herod, people like those that are going to see us and, and see us as threats or whatever it may be, or the animosity, or the unpredictability of life, the tragedy, the trauma that we don't see coming, whatever it is, that comfort's going to be disrupted. And sometimes God's going to ask you to choose, and it's going to take courage to say, yeah, I'm going to forego my comfort for his plan. And the reason that is such an important thing to remember and what I believe they discovered through this journey and what we all have a chance to discover is that when we actually embrace that with faithful, courageous obedience, what we discover is this incredible mystery. It's not just that God's plan is greater and more important than my comfort. God's plan is the source of my comfort. Right? It doesn't matter 
what happens to me in this life, in this world, and in these circumstances, whether it is good or bad, fortunate or difficult, I only finally true, find true comfort when I'm in the midst of his will. He is my shepherd, and he walks with me on the mountain and in the valley. And when I really find that sense of comfort that my soul is longing for, I discover it's not in the things of earth, it's not in the things of men, it's not in the things of riches, it's in the things of Jesus. That's what comforts me. It's the only thing that can comfort me through tragedy and difficulty, no matter what road that I'm on. If we can cling to that and believe that, it allows us to respond with courageous and faithful obedience. So I'll close with this. I think the, the, uh, the main application for us today that it makes this so powerful and such a beautiful message for us is to recognize that all of us are on a road and a journey where we're looking for that sort of rest. We're looking for that sort of safety. Perhaps we haven't experienced that desire from a physical standpoint, but we have from a spiritual one. All of us have restless souls. Right, Something internally that has us longing for peace, having us long for rest and comfort and safety and all those different things. And we constantly seek it in all these different areas and all these different places. And time and time again, we discover that nothing satisfies, nothing really can fulfill us that way. What we discover and what the gospel unveils for us is that we are all sojourners here. We're all travelers Right? We're all foreigners. The earth is not our home. You're never fully going to feel at rest here, at peace here, safe here, because this is not our home. And so what makes the Christmas season and the gospel so incredibly inviting and powerful and incredible for us to embrace each and every year and each and every day for the rest of our lives is that God breaks into this place, into our space, and he says, come and follow me. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, and what will he give us, church? He gives you rest. He gives you rest for your souls. <laughs> That's what the gospel does. And so let us come to this manger. Let us come to this animal trough mindful of the incredibly unique circumstances and the incredible journey and road that Mary and Joseph have been on. And let us find Jesus and hear him extend a word to you this Christmas season saying, come, follow me. And if you follow him with that sort of courageous and faithful obedience, you're going to find a Savior who leads you to the places that are safe, leads you into a place of refuge, leads you into a place of rest. Jesus has come to lead us home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And I pray that you would Help open our eyes and our hearts to what it means to love others, God, who are desperately looking and searching for anything that could be an expression of safety or comfort. God, for us to see those around us who have experienced similar plights and difficulties, 
that Christ himself experienced, that Mary and Joseph experienced, help us to see them in a way and, and approach this Christmas season to minister to them, to care for them, to give them the rest and the comfort that they need. God, help us to see them as you see them. And God, for, for all of us, as we are on our own roads and our own, on our own journeys, whatever they may be, whatever um, benefits we experience or blessings we encounter or difficulties or hardships, no matter what road we may travel, God, help us to follow you knowing that you are the only one that can provide the rest that our souls so desperately long for. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room today who feels your spirit prompting them, stirring within them, to come to you, to follow you, to give their life to you in fullness, that they've never done that before, that they, they want to trust you with that same faithful obedience, God, that you would speak to them now, God, and that you would draw them unto you. God, lead them to a place where they would confess in their own hearts in this time of prayer that they believe in the one that you have sent, that they believe in the hope of the cross and the resurrection. God, that they would confess in their hearts and with their mouths that you are Lord, God, and that you would, you would draw them and call them unto yourself and that you would use all of us to make such a decision each and every day that we can point others to you. God, we love you and we thank you so deeply for who you are and the way that you lead us and that you have sent your son to lead us home. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.